I'm your host, Seth Day. I use he, they pronouns, and you're listening to Rad Child Podcast. All right. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Rad Child Podcast. Today, we are talking about gender roles. So this month, we're talking a little bit about gender. Um, Two weeks ago, we talked about sort of gender in general. Now we're specifically kind of talking about gender roles and how uh, those impact kids. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to let my guests introduce themselves. So we're going to do our name, uh, where we're from. Uh, our oh, name, pronouns, where we're from, and our connection with kids. So uh, I guess, um, Christia, if you want to start. Sure. So I'm Christia Spears-Brown, and I am a professor of developmental psychology, and I study gender stereotypes in kids. Um, so I am at the University of Kentucky, so is where I live now. And I not only am a developmental psychologist, but I have two daughters, um, so I'm kind of in the throes of parenting as well with a 15 year old <laughs> and a nine year old. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> yes. and my pronouns are she and her. Amazing. And, uh, I am Kaylin Krieger. I live in the Puget Sound area of Washington on Skokoma's tribal land. Um, and my pronouns are she and they, I am a stay at home parent I have two amazing children that I have stumbled through raising in a gender creative (laughs) way. (laughs) It's always a process. It's always a learning process. Um, But I have a five-year-old, a five and a half-year-old that is gender queer and in kindergarten. And then I have a three and a half-year-old that (laughs) is still exploring. So some days it's they, them. Some days it's she, her. And we just kind of figure it out as we go. I love that. Um, I I also love the five and a half at that age. That half is so important. So, so important. <laughs> Could you imagine if we still did that as adults? We're like, yes, I'm 28 and three quarters. <laughs> I think about that. <laughs> right? I think about that sometimes too with like, because obviously developmentally, right, there's a lot more going on when we're, which is why we split things up by right three months versus five months. Um, but before I was really in the world of kids, I was like, that's so stupid. Why don't we don't do that as adults? You know, like we're not like, yes, I'm 10,000, you know, and a half months old, whatever. Um, but I think about that sometimes if we still, if we still uh, talked about our ages like we did when we were younger. But I do know an older lady who's like 92, who would say she's 92 and a half. So she says, when you get to be that. this old, you got to, you got to, you know, embrace every single month you still got. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> I love that. Age, well, yeah. it's like, we always say that like, right age is kind of cyclical, right. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm going to be doing a lot of hand motions that I then realize no one can see because this is an audio medium. I do a lot of air quotes and then I'm like, I guess I should say that I'm doing air quotes. No one can see them. Um, I'm Italian, so I talk a lot with my hands. (laughs) But anyway, uh, without further ado, let's get started. So um, I'm curious. I've a lot of times on this uh, on this podcast, we talk about a lot of topics um, that maybe we're not prepared to answer questions about um, and sort of are caught off guard by. So I'm curious if there was ever a time that a child asked you a question that you weren't prepared to answer. It could be gender related, could be not, could be your kids, could be other kids, um, but a time that a child asked you a question you weren't prepared for. <laughs> I can say the only time that's really 
stumped me was a question more about sexuality. So gender, I mm. can talk about kind of all day long with kids. I think about that stuff a lot. But in terms of actual, not even sexuality, but in terms of actual sex, that's where I become less comfortable, mm -hmm. like just talking about it. I don't teach about it. I just don't talk about it. And so one of my kids asked about, it was something about how babies are made kind of thing. And I was wanting to give the really mm -hmm. appropriate answer of the peanut, you know, that sperm comes out of a penis into a vagina. I was trying to like give that explanation. And I was like, Oh, I just don't even want to have this conversation. Um, we're very like body positive. So we talk a lot about body parts and all of that. But the actual two people make it like the actual act of sex, I was not prepared to discuss with like the four year old. Um, so that was where yeah. it bumped up against my own comfort level. Of, oh, I wasn't ready for the sex talk at this age, even though I was really good with all the body parts of it. Yeah. That one I just had to yeah. swallow my own discomfort and plow through. I will say, well, by the time this is out, um, the previous month we're actually talking mm -hmm. next. So this coming for yeah. us in the future where we are now. Um, but we'll actually, we're talking about sex and how to talk yeah. to kids about sex. So <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah. It's, I think that's one of the most, that's kind of, um, I feel like the uh, sort of stereotypical mm -hmm. question that parents get stumped on, right? Is the like, where do babies come from? And then we're all like, well, we're not, you know? Um, so I think that that's, uh, that's very, it's a very common one. And I think also where a lot of times we're not prepared. I think there's this sort of idea that like, oh, well, yes. we'll talk to kids at this age about it. And yeah. so when younger kids, mm -hmm. right, and younger kids, like, explore yeah. their bodies and younger kids are, you know, like, will often have questions about sex. And, um, and so I think that when those when it happens with a younger kid, that's when we're, we're like, Oh, we'll figure it out for yeah. later. And I'm a big believer in, <laughs> if the kid is asking, then they're ready for the answer. You know, if they're asking, then you should have the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and that they are yeah. often asking it in the kind of emotionally laden way that we are thinking about it ourselves, right? They just really wanted to really there's a mm -hmm. sperm that gets in yeah. and they really were kind of and then I was trying to then I was want to be inclusive and so I'm also like so this is how some babies are made but yeah. some babies are made and I was trying to be really inclusive of all the ways in which babies are made including kind of in vitro and all of those yeah. other kinds of methods and it's kind of surrogacy and all of that and then I was on a 30 minute conversation when they probably wanted a like 15 second um, explanation <laughs> Well, do you know, do you know the book, What Makes a Baby by Corey Silverberg? Yes. Yeah, that's yes. my favorite like for that conversation yes. because it includes, it's like all bodies, all, it's just like, it takes these things to make a baby. Right. Some bodies have these, some bodies don't, yes. but that's what you, those are, you know, the essential ingredients, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think uh, that's, and it's not a, again, it's, we were talking about this too, or um, on, in that, on that recording session of like, mm -hmm. sometimes we need to actually figure out, like, it's always good to have, like, to ask a question, answer a question with another question. Like, well, what do you know about that? Or what are you curious about <laughs> right. that? Yeah. Because sometimes we'll end up going into a 30-minute thesis and they just wanted to know, you know, the bare minimum. Yes. Or or even sometimes my favorite anecdote from that episode was one uh, person was talking about how um, this was like an anecdote of a friend of mm -hmm. theirs who they, the kid asked a parent what is sex mm -hmm. and the parent went into this long detailed conversation about what sex was and they said and they listened and they nodded and they said okay because mommy says dinner's done in three seconds <laughs> <laughs> so we want to make sure we know what the question is 
Right. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we had my the, my younger um, kid was, I think, seven, and she said, mm-hmm. "What is sex?" So at this point, I had already gone through round one with the first kid, and so by the second kid, <laughs> yeah. and so I did say that. I was like, "Well, what do you think it is?" Um, and she said, "Well, I've seen it on TV." And then I'm kind of horrified, wondering what has she seen <laughs> on TV, and really what she. um, what she considered sex to be was two people kiss, they hug, they fall on the bed and then they roll off the bed. And that was her definition. (laughs) I was like, all right, okay, we'll go with that. Sure. According to TV, that kind of is what sex (laughs) is. It's like a bunch of ambiguous body parts, close-ups of ambiguous body parts. You're like, my friend and I have this game when there's sex scenes in movies where we like to play what body part is that? Because it's always just, I'm like, could be an elbow, could be a leg. Who knows? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. But anyway, before we get too far off topic, um, Kayleen, do you have a a time that a kid asked – a question you weren't prepared for (laughs) right every day i don't think that there's a way to necessarily always prepare for questions Mm. i'm pretty open when it comes to talking about sex i was uh blessed with um volunteering at uh, cascade aids project out of portland Mm -hmm. and with their like teen education group and in, in my early 20s, and when I saw teenagers being able to talk about sex and pleasure, I said, what am yeah. I doing? I need to get on board with this. I need to be okay with these conversations. And so I kind of honed some of those skills at that point. <laughs> yeah. But it definitely is the um, – it's definitely more of like the sex, romantic type of conversations that are really hard for my five-year-old to grapple with. Those are the ones that kind of catch me off guard because they don't, inside, you can tell that they don't necessarily understand the Mm -hmm. sexual attraction ideas yet um, and only like dabbling in the idea of crushes. So they know they don't get it and they're just really um, tenacious Mm -hmm. about like trying to understand things. Yeah. So it's that tenacity that I come up against more so than just even like the content of the question. Yeah, totally. (laughs) So that's like my, um, I was with my friend yesterday who has a um, five-year-old daughter. I don't know if she's five and a half or five and three quarters, I should ask, Um, but she's about five. And uh, she came home from, you know, school one day and was like, so I have a boyfriend and she was like, oh, you know, really? Okay. And and she's like, he doesn't know that he's my boyfriend. I'm so, like, well, okay. Now we need to like have a conversation about like consent and like you can't like when you can really, but I really like, but I'm in love with him. Okay. That happens sometimes that we might be in love with someone, but like we need to have a conversation with them. If they don't want to be your boyfriend, then they're not your boyfriend. <laughs> but it's so funny at that age, like the way their brains work. Um, but, uh, but anyway. Um, so before we sort of dive into the topic, I'm curious sort of what you talked a little bit about this, but what your kind of connection is with the topic of gender roles and what sort of sparked your interest in, in this topic? Um, so I started kind of doing this work when I started graduate school. So I've been now doing it, um, 20 Mm. years, 21 years or so, and was interested in, I mean, it started in a super being 
aware of the restrictions on a gender binary at a time before that was really part of the kind of common language that we really knew much about. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. it was the mid 90s. And I remember I was babysitting for a kid and we went to a McDonald's and they ordered a hat because they were getting a happy meal. And the the person said, Mm -hmm. do you want a boy toy or a girl toy? And I remember being this 22 year old student. I was like, I'm going to go into psychology, but I didn't really know what and getting just really irate at the counter of this McDonald's thinking, what a ridiculous question. Like, I don't know. What is the toy? Like, how, how do we know what the kid wants to play with? Like, just really having this light bulb moment of how ridiculous that yeah. was that a child should be forced to play with a toy simply based on girl or boy, right? I was like, that completely ignores that there's an actual person here um, that's unique and may not yeah. fit that, that one single criteria. And so then thinking about, gosh, I wonder if like I could study that because like, what's that do to a kid to like be funneled into such a rigid category Mm. in such an everyday kind of way, right? So just all of the ways in which we force that binary and then distinctions um, throughout every single day of their entire lives. And so sure enough that I I realized, oh, you can go to graduate school and study that. So that's what I did. (laughs) And so I've been doing it ever since and then have evolved kind of how I think about it just as our science has evolved. Um, And so think a lot more about not only how parents contribute to gender stereotypes, but the ways in which kids deal with gender discrimination, the ways in which they form stereotypes and the ways in which gender non-conforming kids um, are impacted at school because of peer relationships like that. Um, so I, so I, and then I had two kids. So I did, I was a developmental psychologist before I had kids and then had kids and then actually tried mm-hmm. to do the stuff that we studied, you know, with the kids. I was like, Oh, this actually does work. They're actually really interesting, <laughs> unique kids. Like they're, um, that there really is a lot to be yeah. said of pushing back against these societal restrictions and, um, and that it's not that hard to do actually, if you just decide you're going to do it right. It's, <laughs> And that's, I mean, what, and how amazing is it to like, what a unique experience to have that sort of prep before you have kids, <laughs> because I feel like a lot of times, yes. even, you know, you could read all the parenting books there are in the world, but it's like, then you just kind of jump into it, you know, and, and it's hard. And every kid is so ideas. different. Oh my yeah, God. I mean, yeah. every kid is so different. So you do it with one kid and you're like, oh, this is the way to do it. I'm, I'm a genius. And then the second <laughs> kid comes along yep. and it's a completely different ball game. Oh and so gosh. then you're like, okay, let me figure out this kid because this kid's really unique from that kid. I, I work <laughs> I, I work primarily with younger kids just because as a nanny, um, that's usually my client, you know, the clientele mm-hmm. that, right, if you're in school, you probably don't need a full-time nanny right. um, for the most part, uh, although there are exceptions. And uh, so it's funny. I always tell parents, like right now I'm with um, 16-month-old twins, and I'm always like, as soon as you figure it out, like whatever it is, if it's a sleep schedule, if it's the feeding, if it, it's going to change in like a month. Yes. Like you're going to be like, yeah, we got the schedule down. This is great. And then they're going to, it's going to change. Like yeah. as soon as you feel like you have it down, <laughs> you know, it's always ever changing. Yeah. And as the parent of a 15 year old that has yet to stop, it's, it is <laughs> to like <laughs> do that. So. Oh my yeah. gosh. Um, anyway, Kaylin, do you have uh, anything to add to that? Yeah. So I kind of got um, interested, I think from a very early age, uh, I was kind of what, I don't know how I feel about the term, but tomboy. 
mm-hmm. growing up. And um, I remember developmentally when I hit sixth grade, it was like no longer a space for me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know where to fit. Yeah. And it felt very um, like, here's your container mm-hmm. and this is how you fit in. And I just didn't exist in there. So I knew mm-hmm. how to put the container on and wear it, but it just didn't fit ever. And so when I got pregnant, actually, um, and I, I, uh, my undergrad and my graduate degree are in kind of women's studies, gender studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I uh, got pregnant, everybody told me how this experience was going to go. And it didn't. It didn't go those ways. Um, and it was kind of this idea that I got fed about how my, you know, womanhood would be validated in this mm-hmm. process. And what was really beautiful is that it wasn't, <laughs> that it wasn't validated, that it showed me that there's a space for myself in the process, but that it doesn't fit in those boxes. And I got yeah. really, really lucky that I had two amazing non-binary folks in my life, both mm. parents, um, and they kind of helped me find language and space. And then I kind of just started tripping through how to um, kind of undo that binary as I raise my child yeah, um, and just continuing to try to do that as, mm-hmm. as we grow. Yeah. That's, I think a lot of our, the ways that we interact with kids as adults um, reflect on the ways that we were interacted mm-hmm. with as kids and whether um, it's almost sort of a similar thing to like, I feel like we either become our parents or become the exact opposite of our parents in a lot of ways um, or at least some mixture of there where we're like, Oh, my parents did this thing and it didn't work. You know, I remember disliking that thing. Like for example, for me, what comes to mind is like being forced to kiss my grandparents. Oh. I hated that. Yeah. And this was, we talked a lot about this oh, when we were talking about consent, we talked about sex and mm-hmm. consent in a previous episode. Um, but like for me, I was always like, you know, I, the kids that are in my care, I always give them options. I'm like, you can give a friendly wave. You can give a high five. You can do nothing. Like it's whatever is comfortable for you, but I'm, never going to force a kid to do that because that's something that was forced upon me. And um, right, you know, in the same way, there are things that my parents did that I appreciated as an adult. And I'm like, wow, that was a really awesome thing my parents did. I would like to, of course, now I can't think of anything. Like my parents (laughs) were terrible parents. They're not, they're great. Um, But you know, there are things, and a lot of that is generational and things like that. But I think it's interesting how uh, you know, the ways that we interact with kids were so, so affected Mm -hmm. by the ways that we were Mm -hmm. interacted with those children. Um, so I'm curious if you have, uh, if you can think of one, cause sometimes I feel like it's hard, but, um, if you have an early memory of, you know, involving gender roles or like becoming aware that there were gender roles in the world. I very clearly remember, um, being mindful and I don't remember if someone explicitly told me this or how I picked up on this cultural message. But I remember being a girl in like the sixth grade and being mindful that I needed to downplay how smart I was in class so that the boys would Mm. feel okay about themselves. And like being mindful of like not winning something or not outperforming a boy to protect their ego. And I remember being, I remember being young so and, and hindsight, I don't really remember where I got that message, but I do remember being yeah. aware of it and thinking that is ridiculous. <laughs> I think I probably still conform to it, <laughs> but being like, really, this is a ridiculous um, way that we're supposed to um, present ourselves to boys. 
Yeah. In a way, it's almost scarier when you don't know where it came from. It's like if someone outright sat down and was like, this is the way things are, then I can like, but it's scary that like subliminally those messages are coming through in our society. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, and it's so unhealthy for really everybody involved. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, So yeah, I I vividly remember thinking this is really a screwed up system, but not feeling empowered (laughs) enough at that point to think about how can I push back against it? I definitely took me into well into adulthood to feel empowered to kind of have influence to that fight. Um, But then just being aware of this really seems like an antiquated system that we're all buying into. And again, I think that also like the lack of empowerment is something that I relate to as someone who is socialized female. I think a lot of times we're told to just sort of be people pleasers and, you know, keep the kind of keep the peace and not speak up, speak up. Um, And that's something that like, you know, it took me sort of to transitioning and to, you know, moving to this place where I recognized that I now had privilege, mm-hmm. but like that I felt like I could, I was like, oh, I'm allowed to like speak up for myself yeah. now. And I was like, wait a minute, I could have always done that. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's, it's very strange. Yeah. It's very strange to live on both sides of that. Of that. <laughs> I think that's a really great, like initial also um, structure that we like interact with when it comes to gender roles is this idea of people pleasing yeah mm-hmm. like that was definitely my so I was terrible at it so whenever I say I'm a people pleaser people don't believe me <laughs> but just because I'm bad at it doesn't mean I wasn't socialized to do it you know and so I've had to unlearn that and that has been a part mm-hmm. of my parenting process is that idea of like having to set boundaries and all of that it's very new and I think yeah. that's like mm-hmm. absolutely one of the initial kind of gender coding right. things that we start to to interact with and that there's a real distinction yeah. between kindness to others versus conforming mm. to others expectations of what you should be and that people pleasing yes. in some ways comes from a good place of i want to be kind to others to make them happy but that's very different than let me conform who i am just to fit their preconceived mm-hmm. expectation of me mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah Kaylin, do you have any other, um, anything to add as far as like an early memory of, um, I, of gender uh, roles? Of gender roles. Yes. Like, like I said, like the people pleasing was mm-hmm. always a thing. I grew up in an alcoholic family. So we mm-hmm. had the dynamic. Uh, my dad was is an alcoholic, recovering alcoholic. And so we had that structure with enabling, mm-hmm. right? That comes with it. Mm-hmm. And that was the role my mom filled. And so that's a lot of what I found out was that, um, kind of that idea of like people pleasing and making sure that no waves were made and you kind of yeah. hold, hold that kind of space um, without boundaries, right? That space without boundaries. I, I mean, it's, I'm open with the idea like, yes, my, my um, dad is a recovering alcoholic. So growing up that had a huge structure on how gender relationships also mm-hmm. worked with my mom. Um falling into the enabling role. And so that was the immediate role I was also cast into um, because we were in heavily patriarchal spaces. Um, My Mm -hmm. dad played uh, baseball and it took up a lot of time. Mm -hmm. Um, And those spaces were really toxic. And so it just kind of affirmed everything in the home. And those spaces also hyper-sexualized me from a very young age. Mm. So I understood very, very young, maybe fourth grade, um, with the idea of like 
what I should be performing at, like what what level of attractiveness I needed to be performing at, yeah. what level of ac- like kind of acquies like acquiescing, yeah, acquiescing to um, standards, like like you're saying with like the people pleasing. On mm-hmm. um, I knew when I wasn't meeting like attractiveness standards. Mm-hmm. And so that was also um, a part of kind of the development uh, in which I started to really understand uh, that, like, my little brother never experienced any of that. He's about yeah. four years younger. Um, and to see those comparisons as I grew really started to shape how I understood what gender roles were. And then, yeah. you know, not having, like like you guys said, the empowerment to change that, but also knowing it was total, total BS. Yeah. Yep. That just like sparked a memory for me that I totally forgot about when I, I was in, gosh, I guess like middle school or high school, but at a point where like I had developed breasts and I um, was hanging out with my cousin who was male. He was a couple years younger than me. Um, And (laughs) it was like Halloween or something. We were eating and we were in some space that we were eating candy and I, a Skittle fell down my shirt and he like went and got it. And I was like, went to my dad and I was like, that yeah. was inappropriate. Like that happened. And he was like, ah, it's just boys yeah. being boys. Yeah. And so I'm curious about, I feel like that's, you know, yeah. that's kind of an interesting, that whole idea of like boys being boys. And I would love to like talk about that a little bit mm-hmm. and what. We do a lot of that work in our lab, right? In my research lab right now. So we measure this thing that we call sexualized gender stereotypes. So it's really kind of both of what you're you know, speaking to is, mm. and we see that it pops up in kids. I mean, we see it in as young as sixth graders, but I think if we probably did it earlier, we would find it earlier. It's this idea that girls think they should be flattered by boys' kind of sexual attention and that their most of their value comes yeah. from the sexual attention of boys and the complementary idea that um, boys should be only interested in girls as sexual objects, not as friends, um, that boys, as many kind of sexual conquest yeah. as they can get, the better, that they shouldn't be expected to be monogamous, mm-hmm. um, and that girls should really just be flattered by the attention. And we see that both boys and girls are buying into that right around the time that they're starting puberty and it's a little bit earlier. And that that is really, we see that it's predicts girls doing worse academically over time. Partly it's the idea that they, so we see that kids in elementary school even pit sexy and smart against each other. The girls do, they kind of say, I want to be sexy, but I can't also Mm. be smart. So we've done it through a bunch of different studies. And so it seems to be this idea that I want to be sexy because that's where I get my value. But that means I can't be smart too because those are incompatible. And we find that the more they buy into that, the more they put up with things like sexual harassment. Then you had the people pleasing part on top of it, right? And then they're like not reporting the sexual harassment Mm. that they're experiencing because it's a bad cocktail. It completely is a bad cocktail. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and so I was like, and boys were fostering them sexually harassing girls, and then girls were basically saying, just put up with it and don't tell anybody because that's rocking the boat. Yeah. And you just internalize it and then feel bad about your body and yourself and all of you know. And, and I, yeah, yeah, so it is this really, and we see this in like seventh by seventh graders. <laughs> 
And I, I think even like in the example I gave, like a lot of times, um, you know, folks who are socialized female will go to someone and then it yeah. will, even as adults in the workplace or things like that, um, situations will just be brushed off. And so it's reinforcing that idea to not tell anyone. Yeah. And we know in schools, a lot of times girls won't say anything to the teachers because then the teachers will come back mm-hmm. and say, well, what were you doing to ask for it? Or nope. girls will then get in uh, trouble for like a dress code violation. Well, you shouldn't have been wearing this with the, with the strap shirt. Um, and so girls get, are the ones that are getting punished instead of the boys that were doing the behavior. Yep. <laughs> yeah. The, right. the classic, they like you. Yeah. So that's why they're being abusive. We've yeah. already gotten that. Oh my five gosh. And a half We've already gotten that. Oh my gosh. I know. I can't. I just, um, I just like, I can't, I can't <laughs> with that. It's too much, isn't it? It's too much. Yeah, that that gets interrupted yeah, good. from this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so very strong. We um we already talked about this a little bit, but I'm curious, like what? And this is a big question, so just you know, wherever it leads you, go with it. But um, you know, what gender roles do you think are you know most prevalent in our society, and how do you think that they affect kids even at a young age? I mean, I think that sexualization and the appearance on girls. So I, mean, I think. Partly it's just that there is a binary at all is in is also part of the kind of issue that there are um, a certain types of girl behaviors and boy behaviors. And that I think that's problematic. Um, and then I think the idea that girls should be focused on their appearance and should be pretty and that that's the thing that's most important about them, which it then gets distorted later to being sexualized. But that idea that girls are valued for how they look um, I think is a really bad one. And then that boys should be aggressive and tough and not vulnerable and mm-hmm. not empathetic or nurturing yeah. and caring um, mm-hmm. or kind of really even have emotions at all. <laughs> um, I think of the one that's I yeah. think of as the most kind of problematic. It seems to start early and we see it's problematic in adults too. So. And just in case there are listeners who might not be familiar with the idea of the gender binary, do you mind explaining a little bit what that means? The basic idea that there are two genders, girl and boy, or man and woman, that are Mm -hmm. identified accurately at birth and are consistent through the lifespan, right? It's just that there are these two categories that apply to (laughs) that everybody fits into only one and one all the time. Thank you. I, th- I think about this a lot as someone who, like, as a trans person, right, I'm, like, really into, you know, all this terminology and things that I know. And I'm like, oh, I have to remember that not everyone, right, even me, like, a couple of years ago, right, I didn't necessarily know what all these words meant. Um, so I'm trying to remind myself to take a pause and be like, should talk about that. <laughs> So I appreciate that. Yeah, it's like if you can very easily go into a public bathroom and pick male or female without ever thinking about it, you probably fit neatly into the gender binary. However, there's you know millions of people that don't that don't yes. have that as a privilege. So there has to be a pause and a um, yeah, a decision point absolutely. made. And I think that's kind of acknowledged. Yeah, that, that there are definitely yeah. people who exist um, in spaces in between that and outside of that um, and in both of those spaces at mm-hmm. once and all, all of those different kinds of things for sure. You, oh, uh, Christy, or Christy already went. Um, Kaylin, do you have anything to add? It's, it's the C and the K. It's tripping me up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good uh, initial sound. It's true. Of a name, I um, yeah, I just to kind of reiterate that um, those points being made, one thing that I've really seen and that we get a lot of pressure on 
is this idea that like my my child was ready to be out like they were like not boy girl no <laughs> no that's not that's neither works <laughs> like i don't think yeah no thank you um and of course we unfortunately got a lot of pushback and a lot of um trans anti trans hate about that um but in that in that space of saying okay neither of these things work then we we're kind of left like okay um well, what works? What, you know, what works for you? And so just through that process of consent, of continual check-in and consent, um, we've been able to really remove the idea that only certain things are for girls and Mm -hmm. only certain things are for boys. But it's not, I mean, it's a constant. Yeah. Yeah. It's a constant. So I think one of the funniest conversations I've ever had um, and funny and not a great way is <laughs> that um, someone said, I've only uh, shown my child uh, <laughs> uh, the option of being gender queer. Like that's the only uh, mm. thing I've shown them. And that's why they must be gender queer. And I just thought, what wonderful world is there <laughs> that, that the only option would be gender queer? Because we don't see that option anywhere <laughs> in, what, yeah. in what we do, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that constant barrage still happens. Um, for us, it, it makes it so that there's no space rather than a space to fill. Mm -hmm. Um, when you're a particular gender and they say, oh, this matches you. So we have a little different, um, entrance Mm -hmm. point, I guess you could say to, to some of that while I'm parenting, but it's still there. I mean, we're up against the binary all the time and what that means and having to, to, constantly interrupt that. What you talking about that made me think about the story of this teacher. Um, I was given a talk and this woman stood up and she was a teacher and was telling about what they did at the, that at her preschool. So she taught preschool and she said every single day the kids come in and they, they have um, their pronoun options that they pick every day that they put on their desk and every day they can do she, he, they. Um, those are the ones they kind of have. And they say every day, that way it can be different every single day. I they love that. They every day, they can pick she every day. But I loved it because it also just normalizes that. And it's and the idea that this is just a thing we can use daily and it makes it a thing every kid does, right? Yeah. So it's this. it just normalizes that this is not an assumption we're going to make for you today and that you're in control of how we're going to interact with you. I oh, know um, oh, I loved it. I was like, what a simple thing that is a really profound yeah. statement for three, four, and five, for exactly your age kid. Yeah. And, that, and that's also something that like, you know, we've gotten leveled a lot of, ridiculous accusations about what we're, you know, doing oh, yeah. to our kid, for our kid, whatever, you know, um, you know, everybody has the same, it, it's never created <laughs> right. or new, <laughs> the accusations, right? Um, I guess being transphobic does not mean you can be <laughs> <creative>. <laughs> But um, that was one thing is people were so worried that we were okay with um, the exploration Mm -hmm. just in general and that somehow we're locking, I'm locking my kid into a trans identity. And I said, I don't care if they change their gender every single day. It's how they're working on articulating and understanding themselves. And if that changes over time, great. If they need to and want to come out every day for their entire life, 
I will respect mm-hmm. it every single day because it doesn't change that. We use mm-hmm. self-expert. Mm. That's been a really helpful concept. So sometimes we'll do a check-in like, oh, mm-hmm. does mommy know who you are and your gender? Like, can I decide no. that for you? Yeah. And there's like, no, self-expert. And so that mm-hmm. is one of the weird pressures and fears is like you don't tell people also that your yeah. kid's like questioning or trans until it's like those what do there's like several different um yeah like consistent I can't yeah. remember exactly yeah. but I I didn't wait for those because uh, and I understand them and I understand the use of them but for us it was like okay well you're exploring that and we're gonna allow you to explore it openly because there's nothing wrong with it I was going to say, I like the saying, it doesn't have to be permanent to be profound. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. I love that. I've told this story before but on the podcast, but there um, was a kid that I was nannying and um, he woke up from his nap one day and he was like very, um, for the most part, kind of very stereotypical. I'm, I'm using air quotes for everyone who can't see me. Very stereotypical, like a boy. You know, he played with trucks and he liked to get dirty and he liked trains. And, and his parents sort of let him, like he had baby dolls and he had everybody. But he sort of gravi- naturally gravitated towards the things that you would expect, you know, a quote unquote boy to, na- uh, you know, gravitate towards. And one day he woke up from his nap, although he did have a dress and he liked to wear his dress sometimes because it was fun to twirl around him. And um, he woke up from his nap one day and said, my name's Gabby. And I was like, okay, Gabby, what pronouns do you want to use? Like when I talk about you, do you want me to call you he or she or they? And, uh, and Gabby was like, she. So for a week went by Gabby, went by she. After a week was like, I'm Timothy again. And I use he, him pronouns. And I was like, great. I don't think that harmed him in any way. But now he knows that if he ever decided to be Gabby again or, you know, to explore a different identity, that that would be accepted, mm-hmm. right, um, and taken seriously in, in that household. And I think that that's really important because, um, you know, like that just to know that, the, you know, through that play and through, you know, whatever that was for him, um, to know that now if that ever was a serious thing, it would be taken seriously and respected. Um, and I think going back to what you were saying, Christia, about um, the, the using the pronouns in the classroom, I my background is in art education. And I think that's one of the things that I learned in one of my special ed classes was like, what does inclusion mean? And inclusion isn't, to me, at least personally, it's not saying, oh, there's a trans kid in my class. Now I need to make right. changes for that. You should be, inclusion is, the idea of inclusion is making the space ex- accessible to everyone. Yeah. So by doing preemptive things, like, yeah. yeah, so like that, even if I don't have a trans kid in my class, what am I teaching my kids by allowing everyone to choose well, their pronouns that, you every know, day? I think you the know? latest stats I've seen are something like one in eight kids are gender non-conforming in some way. And I think by doing pronouns every day mm-hmm. in a class, even if every single kid there is gender conforming, I think they're going to go into a world in which one in eight kids are not and one in in eight people are not. Shouldn't we help prepare them for a world in which they recognize there are more than one option? There are ways in which this differ because in some ways it just teaches them this is the way the world is. And so I think that's a powerful lesson, even if it doesn't necessarily speak to their lived experience. It tells them this is there is diversity in the world in this. There's gender diversity in the world. And we're going to develop um, uh, attitude of inclusion towards that. 
period. And just that way, way we, yeah, it's just like kindness towards others. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing just just about like everything else. Like I'm always, I'm a big proponent yeah. of children's books. I love children's books. And I think it's so important, right. Mm-hmm. To be showing um, kids, right. kids that are different than them, right. Or people that are different, different mm-hmm. races, different abilities, different genders, all these different things. I think, right. Even if someone, if I'm babysitting for a kid whose parents aren't divorced, I still think it's valid to read them right. a book about divorce. So they know right. like, Oh, that's a thing in the world that exists. And I might meet someone one day who has that experience. And I think that a lot of times we sort of, um, often whether it's like buying a, a kid a doll that's the same color as them or by reading books that are only about, you know, and I think it's different when it's when it's maybe a minority who um, or a, a marginalized group who's looking mm-hmm. for books where they feel represented as opposed to a majority group who's only right. then exploring right. things that, that are like them. You know what I mean? Um, there's some nuance there, but I think that's a really great way to just introduce kids to all different sorts of, of people. And I don't think right. it should take until they meet someone like that for that to be the first experience they have with that you know with my um i I mean that idea of getting to choose your um Mm -hmm. pronouns every day is something that we kind of practice in our house Mm -hmm. we do a lot of check-ins a lot of changes we do a lot of like um like you're kind of saying like trying on new characters new names new kind of personalities someone asked when um my little one was like two and a half like (laughs) oh what's their gender and I was like, cat. <laughs> Most of the time, it's just a cat. It's meow and kitty. I don't. Sometimes it's a puppy. Sometimes girl. Sometimes gender queer. I mean, they throw it up, but most of the time it's cat. <laughs> I like that. You know, so it's it can be playful, and I think that's what happens when adults get involved. Is it loses yeah. that playfulness? It gets real serious, and um, unfortunately, what happens with that is like what my child is experiencing in school is that. Um, it puts a lot of pressure on them to not only represent the queer yeah. kid, right? Yeah. Like the only queer kid in class or out queer kid, let's be, <laughs> let's be real. The only out ki- queer kid in class, it puts a lot of pressure on them for the adults to, to be educational towards the adults, yeah. towards their peers. Um, so processes, yes, like like the pronoun check-in and also validating exploration and play. Um both of those things are fun, enjoyable. It's a place where kids can exercise agency. And I mean, that's like the biggest part of consent is that they need to be able to step into those spaces and feel empowered or empower themselves, you know, uh, create those spaces so that they can empower themselves to to work on articulating who they are and their yeah, own story. Absolutely. Oh, and we're getting a validation <laughs> from my little. About oh, thank you. Good. <laughs> You want to say you agree? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. All right. Now it's about time for some announcements. Well, there's not too much for me today besides the usual. First of all, thank you for being here and listening. Uh, As I always say, this would be pretty pointless if no one was listening. So you're the most important part of the podcast. Um, after that, it's just the regular stuff. Uh, you can always follow us at Rad Child Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to reach out to us, you can do so at radchildpodcast at gmail.com or on our website at www.radchildpodcast.com. Uh, if you want to be a guest on the show, uh, you can go to our website in our contact section. There's a contact form for that. 
If you would like to support us, like our lovely patrons, Emma Kai and the newest Alex, welcome Alex, um, you can do so at patreon.com slash radchildpodcast. Uh, you can donate as little as a dollar a month and you can get some awesome rewards like bloopers, discord access, care packages, kids book recommendations, actual kids books, uh, and more. So definitely check out our Patreon page. Um, last thing is just a network update. As you uh, know, we're part of the Upford Network, and uh, the Upford Network actually has a brand new show out called Natural Toonie. It's an actual play D&D podcast, so if you're into Dungeons and Dragons like I am, um, uh, you should definitely check it out. It's called Natural Toonie. Uh, it's really, really fun, uh, so definitely check that out. You can find that on our website, upfordnetwork.com. Uh, all right, and without further ado, back to the show. So, sort of going off of we talked again, you know, the conversation always sort of goes in and out to things. But um, I'm curious, what um, do you think is possible to raise kids from, you know, free from gender roles and expectations? And like, is that something that we should strive to do? I think it's possible to an extent, but I think it involves a couple of different approaches. Mm-hmm. So I think one is this idea of stripping gender from areas in which it's not relevant, which is almost always, right? So kind of disentangling the, um, you know, and a lot of it means calling out marketing and television. And and so kind of saying, yes, this is a pink aisle and this is a blue aisle, but that's because they don't realize that kids actually play with toys. I mean, part of it is really calling it out. So I think part of it is stripping it out, taking it out of like our language and the ways in which we make sure we're not in reinforcing binaries. But it's also, I think, giving kids really language for recognizing the biases that they see so that they are then good um, consumers and can then recognize the pressures themselves. So I think there's like, for the first couple of years, we can kind of shield them from all the gender stereotypes and roles and pressures. Mm -hmm. But I think after about age three, we can't anymore. So we have to really give them a a language and that agency to spot it and to be able to call out. Um, so it's yeah. really almost helping them get sh- a shield themselves so that they can then interpret the information that they see in a different way. So I think it's both taking it, a, it's both like making gender more important and less important. I think you can't do one without the other. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly how it feels. <laughs> That's exactly you, how it feels. <laughs> see, I'm curious if you have examples of sort of like um, practical, like the language that you were talking about giving them are tools that we can give them to sort of not protect themselves from, but be aware of and sort of continue to question. Well, I mean, I, an example pops in my head of we were, so my my youngest was, I don't know, maybe three or four mm-hmm. and we were at Costco and we were in the socks. We were looking at, we are going to you know, get her some socks and there was a bin of girl socks and a bin of boy socks. And we're, you know, we're talking four and five-year-old kids who all have the same size foot. Um, <laughs> and so I, and so I said, I think this is crazy. I said, I think that, that they really don't realize that kids are kids and they should have this based on the size of your foot, not based on what they think a girl likes or a boy likes. And so we had a conversation. It wasn't a long one, but it was like a minute long conversation of, I think this, they really um, don't understand what kids are like. And that Mm -hmm. sometimes, 
you're going to like socks in this bin and sometimes you're going to like socks in this bin and that they should put it in just based on kind of your own preferences, not based on what gender they think they are. And so like I do that. So whenever I get irritated by the gender binary, I point it out. Um, yeah, I love that. I have really since the beginning. And so then they get a little, and so it's helpful because so my, and I'll say both of my kids are cisgendered identify as girls. Um, Mm -hmm. and, but both are really pretty fierce about these gendered issues because they, Mm. because parenting does matter, I think. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and so my younger one is very into superheroes and wears mostly would be clothes identified as like boy clothes all the time. So a lot of Mm -hmm. black, a lot of Batman shirts, um, and in the boy cut shirts too. So not the, not the girl version of superheroes, but. Oh, don't you love when it's like pink sequin Batman? So, so, so it's for girls. Girls can like Batman. So uh, Grace gets somewhat angry by that. She goes, I don't know why they think just because it's for girls, it needs to be covered in pink with a sequins on it. <laughs> um, but it's helpful because then Gosh. she was at school and the librarian was passing out stickers for some kind of good behavior mm-hmm. or something and automatically handed her a like princess sticker and, and the other options were superhero ones. And so she said, you know, Miss Jones, she goes, I don't know if you know, but that's a gender stereotype that you assumed I wanted the pink sticker. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I heard about this from the student teacher who was in the room who had like, then her, they're like, Oh, oh you're not going to believe what they're So I, from a, you know, outside observer, and so she was very respectful, but she's like, I don't know if you know, but this is, you know. And I was like, that's ultimately that what I want amazing. is to respectfully say From the mouth of babe. To push back oh against God. it. And the teacher was, so I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. You're right. And I was like, so part of, I think you have to help the kid feel empowered enough to wear the clothes, regardless of what section they're sold at yeah. in the store. Because I pushed back on that. I was like, let's look for clothes. Just because the store thinks mm-hmm. it needs to be yep. labeled girls and boys, we know that that's not accurate. Um, and then also giving her language to tell other people when they say stuff to yeah. her. I love that. And that's what I always say. Like sometimes like I, I mostly wear um, quote unquote women's clothes just because I'm, I'm four foot nine. I'm a small person. Men's clothes do not fit me. Um, and also I just like, I think women's clothes, like when I first transitioned, I would look at the two sides of the stores and be like, one of them is like one color and I can have stripes or solids. And the other one is like every color of the rainbow with all different designs. I have options. Like I'm going to pick that side of the store. That's just more fun to me. And, um, but sometimes I'll, I'll wear, you know, quote unquote women's clothes and kids will ask me, you know, well, why, why are you wearing a dress? Dresses are for girls. And I'll be like, well, I'm a boy and I'm wearing yes. it. So it's a boy's dress. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. that's, that's generally my answer is I'm like, well, if it's mine and I'm wearing it, then it's a boy's whatever. If I identify as a boy, same thing. If you're a girl and you're wearing, you know, a Batman shirt and yeah. that's your boy's shirt, yeah. they're your girl shirt, you know, it doesn't matter you know, who, who it's meant for, but, um, or who it was made for, but, uh, oh gosh, what was that making me think? Oh, you talking about the, like Mm -hmm. the aisles being separated by color, which drives me bonkers, even online, they separate it now. And, um, just the other day, you know, those little like push walkers that babies Mm -hmm. use with the little wheels. And on the front, usually it has, there's this one that literally every kid that I've ever (laughs) nannied has had. It's like a little, it's like, you know, orange and green and blue and you know, all the colors and, and it's like a little farm. Um, so it has like little shapes on it and it has little farm animals and a barn door and whatever. And I just saw yesterday, I was on Amazon for something and Mm -hmm. they have a totally pink one. And I'm like, why? 
there it wasn't even like the other right. one was blue right the other one was like clearly except like anyone would look at it and be like this is okay for any kid right even someone who i think adhered to the gender binary i don't think would have looked at yeah. him and like that's a boy toy um and i was just like why do we feel the need to to make an all pink version and of course there's all these kinds of posts even for adult things like they have <laughs> yeah. pens for her or yeah. like <laughs> you know all of these things that like why yeah. are we gendering pens yeah or why you know um it's wild. And, and one time I, I just remember being in the store, I was at Walmart and the, I was just overhearing, I was shopping for a toy for a kid and I was in the toy department and I was overhearing a parent say, you can get, you know, you were good today or whatever. So you can pick out a toy from the store. And it was, uh, I was presuming a little girl and the kid said, you know, Oh, I want Legos. And the parent said, no, that's a boy toy. You have to pick something else. And I was like, Legos. <laughs> Legos are for everybody. Like it wasn't even like they're yeah. like, I want an action figure or something. Like I was yeah. like, that was wild to me. I, to be fair, it was also context wise. I was in conservative yeah. part of Pennsylvania yeah. at the time. Um, but I was just, that was so wild to yeah. me. I was like, Legos. <laughs> I'm in, I'm in a uh, liberal Washington state and it still happens. I can promise oh you that. It's gosh, still- so wild. Yeah. Kaylin, do you have I anything love to add talking to the, about the, the idea of gender about, neutral um, parenting, gender roles. Um, <laughs> And I think what I started out thinking it was and what it's become and changed as I am responsive to my two kids has been really cool Mm -hmm. to see. Um, A lot of gender neutral conversations are anti-fem, like very anti-fem. And I have Mm -hmm. a gender queer five and a half year old that wears all pink. I mean, it is very, we Mm -hmm. like to call it um, both of my kids spicy mad femmes. Because it's really the space they occupy, <laughs> and they like that. Um, but it's very, very fem. And when we started, I didn't know how to create space necessarily for um, that kind of neutrality or that flexibility. And so we went yeah. with like all kinds mm-hmm. of bright colors and fun different ideas, but no pink, no pink. And then when we hit two Mm -hmm. and I wanted to try to start transitioning bedtime, it became, I said, okay, so what's going to help with getting into a bigger bed? And uh, my oldest looked at me and said, more pink. Oh, where does this come from? We didn't have pink. And right then I had to start unlearning my own internalized anti-femme ideas and anti-femininity and but because I think that we created at least a space for that choice it became very different and I think that Mm -hmm. um if we would have started with all pink and really in in that like gender stereotypical way pink would have been associated with girl and I think sadly my child wouldn't have found a relationship with the color they love and I'm, I'm a, I have an artist mm, background. Yeah. I'm a, a huge color kind of person. I love different color combinations, all these things. And I feel like really emotionally attached to color. And so does my, so do actually both my littles. And I think all kids do. I mean, who doesn't want to be emotionally attached to color? Um, but the like deep <laughs> love of pink was a big surprise for us, but it's taught us so much yeah. about how actually gender neutral, like everything's gender neutral. Um, unless you put yeah. the label boy or girl, like on, like all clothes are gender neutral until yes. you like literally put the word boy on it 
or literally put the word girl on it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that you say that. That makes me think a lot about there. I've worked for all different kinds of families. I've worked for, you know, cis, straight families, queer family, all different kinds of families and, um, you know, all, of all, all different kinds of backgrounds. And there was one family I worked for uh, who was a two dad family. Oh my God, they were so sweet. They still, they just sent me, I started with them when the little girl was eight months and now she's like, five four five and they sent me for my birthday a video of her singing happy birthday to me it was so cute um they're so precious but anyway all of this to say that um they were you know as gay men uh, you know they were both cis gay men um they had felt that they were not were forced into a certain um you know idea of what masculinity meant and had to do this certain thing and so they wanted to sort of raise her quote unquote in a, like a gender neutral way. But to them, what that meant was her wearing gray. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like she was just only, and, and, and I thought that that was really interesting because I, in my mind, I'm like, well, that's forcing something onto her. Yeah. Right. You're, yeah. you're just, it's a, just a different thing. Right. And in, in my mind and like, right. And she ended up like, she loves dresses. Yeah. She loves frozen. And you know, <laughs> I was like, you couldn't, <laughs> you can't stop kids exactly. from becoming who they're going to be. Right. Yeah. But I think it's, it's interesting because for me, my idea of, um, gender neutrality is giving kids all the right. options. So when I, I have, this is my third set of boy girl twins that I've nannied. Um, so I will put them, I will put the boy in dresses. I will put the girl in dresses. I will put them in pants. I'll put them in. I just like to let make them match. I don't care what that, you know, what gender quote unquote the clothes are. Um, but to me, that's teaching them that they have all the options from the beginning. And if they end up being a girl and loving pink, that's great. But you let them know that there are other options. Um, and yeah, so for me, and it's the same with toys, right? I like to, you know, play with a baby doll, play with this, play with that. But I think that limiting options in any way can be mm-hmm. really kind of counterproductive. I mean, I know, I mean, I think all to this point is I know how I faced it in that my younger um, kid, when she was about three, was saying she wanted to get some princesses. And mm-hmm. it's this idea of kind of, and then I had to, ch- and so my first kind of <laughs> visceral reaction was, Ugh, no. Um, but yeah. then I had to kind of <laughs> check myself and think, well, what is it that I don't like? And I thought, what I don't mm-hmm. like about princesses, and this is what I said to her. I was like, you know, I, what I don't like about princesses, well, first I said, well, what is it that you like about princesses? Like, what mm-hmm. is it about the princesses you like? And she said, I like that they wear sparkly, uh, like, clothes. She's like, I like the sparkle. And mm-hmm. I had to then think about, well, what is it that I don't like? I was like, I actually don't, there's nothing wrong with the sparkle. What I don't like is the princesses that their sole job is to be pretty and wait for the boy to rescue mm-hmm. them. And so I told this to Grace. I was like, yeah. you know, what I don't, what mommy doesn't like about the princesses is that there's just girls that just stand there and wait for boys to come save them. And I don't really think that, I don't want you to think that's what girls do. And so, but there is a princess that actually has superpowers and is strong and comes and saves the day. And that's Wonder Woman. Um, and so, cause she's a princess of, you know, the Amazonian princess. And this is before mm-hmm. the movie and all that came out. Yes. Um, and so I got her a yeah. dress up outfit that had the sparkle bracelets, but it, and it was the Wonder Woman kind of outfit. Mm-hmm. And so partly it was mm-hmm. me checking myself and thinking, well, what is it that I'm not liking? And that I, I don't have any problem with sparkle. That doesn't demean anybody to want to wear sparkle. Right. And that just because it's feminine, I shouldn't push yeah. back on that part. 
good because yeah. everything I own is sparkly. Yeah, and so she still likes sparkle. It was a funny thing. Then she took that. So I got her this, the Wonder Woman outfit. She loved it. But then she went a really different direction. She went all superheroes. But like the ones that had the muscles built in, like the boy. Ah, yes. Like the, so she was a Captain America two years in a row and then Batman with like the the padded muscles. I was like, Captain America is my favorite. That's her favorite as well. Yes. Um, He's just so wholesome. Yes. But it was this interesting, what what y'all are saying of pushing back against what is my problem? Let me make sure I'm not devaluing it simply because it looks kind of feminine or girly and keep the good stuff and just push back against the stuff that's damaging. Yeah. And I think so much of it, like you were saying, is questioning ourselves Mm -hmm. and what, right. What is my problem with this and how do I have a conversation with that an age appropriate conversation with that to my kids and just say like, Hey, like it's totally okay. If you like princesses, what do you like about them? And what here are maybe some things that I don't like, for example, she's not technically a princess, but like my favorite is Mulan. I love Mulan. I've always liked Mulan. I don't know how my parents didn't were surprised that I was trans. (laughs) (laughs) Like all my, my favorites were Mulan and the little mermaid, both stories about changing your body. I'm like, (laughs) but um but you know and the little mermaid is a little less less uh empowering i guess but um but mulan was always my favorite because she just like did the thing she's like i don't care about your rules i'm gonna go and like get it done and like i also love merida is another great example of a a princess who's just like nah like that i'm not gonna conform to that that's not what i want to do right now um and so i think also we can talk about the differences between like, oh, you know who my favorite princess is? My favorite princess is Merida because I think this is, or like, this is a really cool Mm -hmm. thing that she did. Um, And there are other good things about other princesses Mm -hmm. too. Um, And, uh, but I think also someone said in another episode, which I really liked was like, we have the ability, we forget sometimes as grownups that we have the ability to like edit things or to pause, right? If we're watching something, we can pause and be like, do you, Mm -hmm. you know, so-and-so is just waiting around for someone to save them. Like, what do you think about that? I do that a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think media literacy Um, cannot be stressed enough when it comes to to, like parenting and, and like if you want to gender neutral or gender responsive parenting, um, that (laughs) my little likes to be involved too. Um, I love it. But that media literacy has Mm -hmm. to be there. And, and it doesn't, what I found does not work is saying like no mm-hmm. to a lot of things. Like, yes, there's no. going to be age appropriate things I say no to, of course. But when it comes to something they like, mm-hmm. but I find it that there's problematic things, it's much easier to like pause or stop or discuss it. Um, yeah. Like, for example, um, my children love the Minion Despicable Me movies. Oh, yeah. But mm-hmm. there's, a lot of, there's a lot of problems in those things. And one of them was like they – tranquilized a date or something oh, yeah. and like mm. and it was so it was just like a really uncomfortable scene and so I pointed it out and pointed out how like there's not body boundaries there's not consent it doesn't matter if that character was rude also why did they make that character rude you know those kinds of questions <laughs> yeah yeah the minions <laughs> and so now they just request that those scenes are fast forwarded. They'll call me from the Mm, other room, but there's nothing that I don't watch with them Mm -hmm. firsthand and break Mm -hmm. down. And then it's a, but it is, it's a continual Mm -hmm. process. It's still a continual process for me. I'll watch one thing. And then the next time I watch it with them, be like, Whoa, that was, Oh, that, that is a big (laughs) problem. I didn't catch. And, and that's, yeah, I, I think, yeah. So when we talk about 
you know, the parenting, how mm-hmm. we can start to undo some of those, those gendered messages, media liter- literacy is like one of the utmost yeah. top things that has to be a part of what we teach our kids. Like this was made. These were choices that yeah. were made to, and like, why do you think they made those choices? Mm-hmm. What choice would you make instead if you're going to create this? Yeah, story? I love that. And um, it just, it makes me think about also, I talk a lot about how uh, in addition to, you know, having conversation, right, we can watch something or read something that's problematic and then have a conversation about it. But in addition to that, with books, as adults, we have the power to edit them. <laughs> we can skip things, we can change things. And there, I have this anthology of um, fa- like mm-hmm. traditional fairy tales, not like the Disney sort of versions. Uh, and I was babysitting, this was like my first time babysitting when I, when I just, before I was, you know, nannying regularly and things. So I hadn't read it since I was a kid and I was like, Oh, it's, you know, it's, I'll bring my fairy tale book and we'll read that before bed. And I was reading uh sleeping beauty and as I'm reading it, I was like, Oh, and so at the end it ended like he kissed her and then they got married the next day basically. And I was reading it and I was like, um, so this happened and then, uh, and then they decided to date and get to know each other for like a couple of years. And then after they dated, they decided that they really liked each other and they, and they decided that they wanted marriage was something that they, they wanted to do. So they got married. I just like, you know, made this whole ending, but I was like, we can do that. And, and also if with older kids who yeah. can see that we're changing the words, yeah. you say, well, why do you think I changed that? Right. You know how the story maybe ends. You've heard like, what are some way, other ways you've heard the story? End, and why do you think I changed that? Um, or right. We can read them the way they are and say like, Hmm, what do you think about that? If someone like kissed you right now, do you think you should go get married tomorrow? Like, I mean, I would take gender um, language out of all of my kids books. So just as I would read, if it said policeman yeah. or like, you know, my oldest was very into curious George books and he has the man with the yellow hat. And so I would just call him the friend with the yellow yeah. hat. And so I would just, yeah, I love that. friend friend is like the, yes it's like a great substitute replacement yeah and it's i so substitute fantastic. kid for yes. boy and girl and friend for that yeah yeah, yeah i say yeah, kiddo, like, kiddo a lot do, especially once you're in the yeah. habit of it and then as they get older if they can mm-hmm. read over you and they're like why are you doing that and then i give my explanation for why yeah so it i think it is books mm-hmm. are a great place to just edit as you go mm-hmm. they're revolutionary they really are yeah. kids books are fantastic and it's something that I actually noticed. There's a book that I really love. It's called Tell Me About Sex, Grandma by Anastasia Higginbotham, who actually was on the episode about sex. Uh, she's wonderful. Um, but uh, I hi- highly recommend it. It's about sex, but not yeah. about how babies are made. It's just about sex, um, which which is why I like to pair it with Corey Silverberg's book, and then you've got the whole conversation. Um, <laughs> but anyway, one of the things I actually just noticed, like, I, I mean, I've read this book dozens of times, and the last time I read it, right before I was the episode uh, we were going to record, I realized not once was the child gendered. Yes. And I was like, it was so easy to do that. Mm-hmm. And in a way that I didn't even notice. Mm-hmm. I wasn't reading it, and I was like, no one ever said he in this book, or no one ever <laughs> said she, you know? And and my brain still decided what, you know, a binary gender for that child. Um, and then I had to, like, evaluate, like, oh, why did I why did I do that? And, you know, that's, you know, what about this child made me decide that it was, that they were a boy. Um, but I thought that that was really interesting that like it was done in such a nuanced mm-hmm. way that like I didn't yeah. even notice and it was so easy to do. Raising uh, my kids with like the, just like the common idea of like not gendering strangers, which is much more difficult for even myself as an adult, my, yeah. my partner. Uh, my kids call me out now. <laughs> they say, how do you know? Yep. 
How did you always have, oh, you're right. You're right. And so a lot of times, actually, there's few books, but some books don't have uh, the gender or name of the child or anything like that. And so if we use um, something to like have that extra talk about, you know, whatever the child is doing or things like that. And if I use a pronoun that has not been stated, my three, my three and a half year old will correct me. I love that. They open up with uh, a lot of questions about like, what are their pronouns? (laughs) What are they <laughs> so that they could like you know talk about that. how cute they think a stranger is or mm-hmm. you know that they like their shoes or something but they want to know what the pronouns oh are. Yeah. It just becomes common language, especially when you can yeah. incorporate it into books. We have a lot of books that are written yeah. that I've written on because there's no need mm-hmm. for some of the the gendered language at all. Yep. Um, but we also do that for you know books about race. Our positionality, we're a white family, and so some books that talk about race. Um, don't talk about it from a white, like we have white privilege. Um, and so mm-hmm. there are some books that I have to change the discussion mm-hmm. to address mm-hmm. our positionality and our privilege in it. Yeah. The Anastasia Higginbotham also has she's four children's books, but one of them is all about whiteness, like race, but from the perspective of white privilege. Um, oh, it's called Not My Idea. Um, a book about whiteness. Uh, And that's, that's a really good one for that conversation. So um, I'm also, I'm also curious about how, and I've, again, we talked a little bit about this already, but how we can model sort of freedom from gender, gender roles in our own lives so that kids are seeing that. And then, cause it's right. It's hard sometimes to practice what we preach. Like we'll tell kids one thing and then, well, like you were saying, oh, I know what I was going to say. My friend um, who is uh, a queer woman married to a trans man um, and they have two, two kids um, uh, that they, they use a donor for. And so they're like very, you know, very queer and very woke and very, you know, all, all of these kinds of things. Right. <laughs> And, and, you know, they always, they teach their kids all of these sorts of things. And one day they were on the bus and um, the bus driver, you know, was asking them to move back in the bus. And then the mother said, you know, oh, you know, she wants us to move back. And the little girl who's like, I don't know, maybe four now was like, mama, like, how do you know that she's a girl or that she uses she, her pronouns? And, and the mother was like, well, because, you know, because she's wearing this or because whatever. And she was like, mom, I thought you said you could tell what someone's gender was from looking at them. And she was like, oh, my God, you're right. <laughs> totally calling me out. Um, and I love I think it's amazing. And when kids are able to like and that's, you know, a lot of times people will be like, oh, Wait, can kids care. understand this yeah. stuff. Absolutely. Sometimes they understand it better than we can. Yes, that is. a. I mean, that's a common one. Like, how do my children know? Yeah. Like, have you? talk like spoken to my children (laughs) what do you mean they are so opinionated they are so present in what they feel and what they believe is like their truth and so that it's always surprising I think it's very telling of Mm -hmm. the kind of adult childism that we carry is this idea that they Mm. don't have their own voices so smart and they know so much about themselves there's there's this really great book called um who are Mm -hmm. you a kid's guide to gender identity by brooke pesson wedby it's amazing but part of what it does is it's like you know you best and part of the book is there's two page spread one is all toys and one is all clothes and it's like what things do you like oh that's and we can talk 
Yeah. It's really great. So the kids can say like, oh, you know, I, you know, I like dinosaurs, but, and I like that pink tutu and I like yeah. this. And it's this idea that kids have agency over, you know, and um, tell me about sex. Grandma also has a great sort of interactive part in the back. That's like, it's about consent. And it's like, what images give you like a, a no feeling or a yes feeling. And like, even when there are times where, you know, there are times, right. Where it's like, you have to, you have to line up oh, or it's yeah. time to go to bed where mm-hmm. you might not have a choice, but it's still good to know what you want. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I love I, I love um, books that allow kids to sort of, you know, remind themselves that they do have agency because it's hard sometimes, right. right? Especially in the younger years, we are sort of, there is a lot of telling. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to do this now. And you can explain, but there's still a lot of like, <laughs> it's bedtime now. Sorry. Um, <laughs> there's this really great, um, co- it's like a little comic image that mm-hmm. I shared that was like, you know, gender is a construct yeah, and yeah. this is a construct yeah. and that is a construct, but yeah. bedtime is real. <laughs> Yeah, that is seriously how we we operate around here. I think that's the second fold, right? Like media literacy and then parenting in a consent way that teaches consent. We have um, kind of this idea of like, well, everything, my children are, uh, you can phrase them in any way, but they, like like I said, they understand Mm -hmm. where they have agency and they understand when it's taken away or not given space. Mm -hmm. They're very sensitive to that. And while as a parent, that's really difficult. In the world, that's how I want them to be, right? I want them to be able to operate in the world. So we usually, we take it as, we call it a parent veto. Mm -hmm. And and it's about safety and health. All all the other things we can negotiate and discuss, but safety and health, Mm -hmm. even though it's sometimes really difficult to deal with that boundary, that's where the boundary is. Yeah, I call that a safety no when I oh, have to say no yeah, to me. So that's a, a safety similar, no. I use the parent veto. <laughs> that's a great one. I was like, you get to pick, but I get yeah. to reserve the option of, of vetoing it if it's a safety issue. I mean, we do that with how they dress as well. Uh, I mm-hmm. say it has to be weather appropriate and appropriate for the level of dressiness. So if it's a wedding, yeah, it yes, needs to be, yeah. <laughs> if it's like a formal event, it needs to be, you know, not ratty short. So it's like, other than that, I, I will never tell you yes or no. Like as long as it fits the weather and fits the level of formality, whatever you choose yeah. is your choice. Um, and sometimes it's, it makes me cringe cause it's, you know, the flower with the flower, casting <laughs> flowers pattern, yep. but I'm like, but the, what I want them is to always feel confident that they look good. And so I was like, if you feel like you look good, then that's all that matters. Cause I'm like, that's a more um, meaningful choice, right? Because you don't want to be pressing yeah. for other people. And so I want them no. to feel like as long as they're comfortable with it, then that is the right answer. Um, I and I just, that. I, and that I say, I'll never do a veto on that. Just weather and formality, the rest is up to you. <laughs> yeah, right. You don't want to be wearing your shorts in the middle of winter. That's not right. Because yeah, that, um, like, yeah. you're going to be miserable and like, yeah. decide probably that you don't, we don't want you to get sick and those kind of one exactly and it's so important to explain why right like i know you really like these shorts but if you wear them it's gonna be really cold you can get sick and i want you to be comfortable right it's about you really even though you want like i always even to my little littles i always try to explain everything and honestly i mean i don't know you know do i think that they're completely understanding me when i they're like really angry that i have to do their diaper and i'm like listen i want you to be comfortable if you're wet you're gonna get a rash but even sometimes just the talking to them and the calmness like just distracts them and they're not they're like listening, even though they're not maybe comprehending everything I'm saying. Right. Um, but I think it's so important to just explain things to kids. Um, and they can understand so much more than we think they can. So much more. And I've done that on what's often my 
biggest parenting veto is that I don't allow Barbies in the house. Mm. Um, and it's because there are several developmental studies that show kids that play with Barbies have worse for girls. They have worse body image afterwards mm. than when they played with a comparable doll of kind of normal proportion. And so clearly I'm raising these, you know, kids that identify as girls. So at birthday parties, they're often given Barbies and things like that. Mm. And so I do, I say, I, we're not going to keep this I actually toss them. Cause I don't want anybody to play with them. But, um, <laughs> Um, we donate most toys, but these are one I don't actually donate, but I really explained, I was like, you know why? Cause in mommy's job, people did studies where they found that when girls your age play with it, they felt worse about how their body looked. And I never want you to do anything where you don't like how your body looks. And yeah. this is my way of help of just saying, I don't want you to eat food that's bad for you. And I don't want you to ever question how your body looks. And so yeah. that's why we're going to not do it. And they've always been fine with that. Partly because it was about a. This is why I'm doing it. It's this is for me a kind of psychological safety thing, um, mm-hmm. and so they're like, okay. And then I would replace it with something else, right? Like the normal yeah. size doll. Have you heard about these? The new the Creative Worlds dolls by Mattel. I have. I have. I have. I have mixed feelings about them because I wish that they had different body body types. Yes. That would be great. But they are, just for listeners who may not know, basically they are dolls that come with both long hair and short hair. They come with outfits of different, um, you know, might have like a tutu and a baseball jacket. And, you know, so you can sort of mix and match um, ideally to, you know, whatever you're feeling that day. Um, uh, But I really, I like the idea. I like where that's going. I, you know, my wife always gets mad at me because I'm always like, we still have room to grow. And she's like, why can't you just be happy and celebrate the the steps that are being made. And I'm like, I know, but as an activist, I'm always like, but we could do this yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> well, just so, so open. Like if you're going to go there, body yeah. diversity. Yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we can only do one thing at a time. Intersectionality doesn't exist and we can only do one at a time. <laughs> oh my gosh. But anyway. That, oh, that part of like the dolls and the representation and the body diversity mm-hmm. is a very gendered thing, right? Like yeah. to be um, a specific ideal man, mm-hmm. an ideal woman, there are very particular mm-hmm. shapes for that that we show in our society. And it's really yeah. hard to counter that. One of the things we like to do with that and it is around body diversity and gender diversity is when we create um, different art projects that have characters – I kind of like go through the whole thing, like each kind of feature. Like, do you want big bellies? Do you want medium bellies? Like how do you, and first of all, my kids love big bellies. Yes. <laughs> they call it, they call it big belly energy. And yes. they're all about it. They That's only so think mermaids are, are fat. And I love that. And then, you know, so we'll just go through all the features. Um, they get to pick names and genders. Like it's all open and that's, Honestly, the only like one of the only ways we can mm-hmm. get body diversity discussions in our household. It is so difficult, but I really think that there's such mm-hmm. a gendered element there that has like that should be discussed um, mm-hmm. and, and broken down, right? There is this really great book. I actually mentioned this in a previous episode, but unfortunately, right now it's only in French. I'm in Montreal, um, but it's coming out in English, and at least in French, it's called "Cher Corps Je T'aime," my uh, dear body, I love you, and it is a really, really wonderful book about like 
all different kinds of bodies. It's particularly, it is particularly mm-hmm. for, for girls. Uh, I get I'm air quotes for people who can't see me. Um, but, uh, there's all the, I mean, there's someone, I mean, on the cover, there's fat representation. There's someone with fertiligo on the cover. There's, um, like all different kinds of bodies. There's all different kinds of abilities represented. And it's a really great book. I would say, I mean, I'm the kind of person who reads everything to everyone. Like I would read, you know, books that people would think are for older kids mm-hmm. for like to my, you know, kids who are 16 months, but right. It's going to be different, right? If you have older kids, you could have a conversation about it. I'm not going to be sitting down. They're probably going to crawl away halfway through the book. That's fine. Uh, they're still seeing those pictures and that's, what's important to me, but that's a really great book about, um, about body positivity and just different kinds of body representation. Um, Cause I have a lot of trouble with that, even mm-hmm. in children's books. I'm like, mm-hmm. I feel like it's still like everybody's skinny and then it's like one person in a wheelchair and there's one fat person. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, we have like one of each. There can only be, and there's one person wearing a hijab and there's one, you know, we can only have those tokens. I feel like it reminds me of the 90s when there would be like one person of like representing <laughs> the major races. Yeah. In, in, a, in a photo it was like you know but there's but somehow there was always at least two white people like there'd be a redhead and a blonde person <laughs> and one black yes. you know and a black person and someone of mm-hmm. some kind of asian ethnicity and they you know um but i feel like I, again it's like we're getting there but we could be doing better um and that's but that's a book that i feel like did a really great job with that um before we get too far off track because we could talk about so many things forever um i going back to um, curious about how like we can model sort of freedom from gender roles in our own lives so that kids are seeing that. I mean, partly we do it in, so in our family, my, um, spouse is a man. Um, so, and I'm, you know, cisgendered straight female. Um, and so for us, it's interesting in that my husband is much more, um, I would say domestic, than I am in all things domestic. So he's now retired. And so he's only in his early 40s, but was a firefighter. And so retired pretty young. And so he does all of the parenting, driving around, the shopping, the keeping track of when piano lessons are and when doctor's appointments are and does all of that and (laughs) all of the laundry and cleaning and all of those things. Whereas I work and then help supervise homework (laughs) are kind of my like parental task. Um, And so it's, but it's interesting of, I will though talk about it too, because they do see it, but I want them to also recognize that in our family, we divide tasks up. We divide tasks up by who enjoys the task and who's good at the task. And gender is Mm -hmm. irrelevant to those two things. So who's better at it? Or like really who cares more about how it's done? We have a hard and fast we have a hard and fast rule of who, whoever cares more does it. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you're gonna yep. that's fantastic. Yeah, that's 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 the cleaning in my house. My wife was like, I we have very different values about oh, what wow. clean means and if it's more important to you, then you're gonna do it. I was like, Okay. <laughs> Putting that in my pocket, I like that a lot. <laughs> yep. If you don't look how, how loaded the dishwasher, you are now fully capable of doing it from now on yep. all by yourself. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And so I see you know, we talk about it's who enjoys it more and who's good at this, um, and that that's not about gender. That's about yeah. us as individuals. And you know, mom likes to do these types of things, so I do the bills. Dad's really good at these types of things. And again, it's like. 
it's about really pointing out that we're all individuals with yeah. our own strengths mm-hmm. and that gender is just really irrelevant to most things in life. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of the big message we often do is like gender is really doesn't tell us much about anything. Nope. And it definitely doesn't tell us about what tasks we should do to help a family run. So we talk a lot about helping our family work and how, how do we yeah. how do we contribute to our family. And so we have our jobs that does that. And so that's one of the ways we model it kind of on a daily basis. I love that. It, it made me think about my mom was telling me a story recently that she still remembers of when she was maybe five or so. And, um, you know, she was out her little sister was, you know, in the stroller and her mom was pushing the stroller. They were on a walk together in the neighborhood. And, uh, her, my grandmother, her mom saw one of her friends and, and they were chatting and, um, you know, so this is what, two generations ago now, three generations ago. And, uh, and my, uh, the woman, they were talking about another woman in the neighborhood and they were like, Oh, you know, her husband got sick. So she had to go back to work. Like they whispered that she was working. Like what a shame that she had to be in the workplace. And my mom still remembers that, you know? Um, But I think it's really interesting how those, you know, those values are definitely uh, changing, you know, always changing and getting better. But, um, but it's still really, really interesting. There are certainly still places uh, and families in which those, those values are still upheld and are important, uh, you know, to, to some people, but. I, th- I think I, I get in my bubble sometimes because I've always I've been living in big cities and, you know, I, f- I forget sometimes that that still exists. <laughs> I mean, my husband got a lot of pushback when he was retiring and a lot of people saying, well, you know, you're only 41. What are you going to do now? And he's like, <laughs> and he said, I'm just going to be at state. I'm going to be a dad. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to yeah. be a dad. Um, and they're like, they would really push back. And he, and he, mm. who, when we met, could not articulate a gender stereotype at all, like had no language at all for that. <laughs> but after, you know, a decade together, <laughs> I've, I've socialized him as well. Um, yeah. But he would say, he's like, you wouldn't say that to a woman though, would you? And he would call mm. it out and they're like, oh, yeah, yes. I guess not. Um, so yeah, so he is the stay at home parent now and it works well. And so, but we do talk about it that way. I love that. Um, I'm I'm married to a cishet man, <laughs> and we're really read as a straight hetero couple. Um, and so I feel like a lot of times I have to try to interrupt that. My yeah. kids read me as queer. You know, they don't they don't think that the roles I do. But I'm a stay at home parent, and my partner works, and so we have that like um, on the outside that very like. Uh, traditional dichotomy and it, it I think it trips people up when they realize like it's not mm-hmm. what it looks like all the time um, but so we've tried to actively um, like like you were talking about like actively try to interrupt some of those things and point out um, why why we do things and um, my partner is very caring and super loving dad. And um, that gets shoved out of the way so often, um, especially, I mean, in all kinds of spaces, it gets shoved out. Mm. And so we always uh, recenter that, make sure there's time for that. Um, And I think one of the most lovely things I saw as a feedback to that, right? Like you're trying to hold on to these little grains of beautiful feedback because parenting is so hard. (laughs) You don't know if you're doing it right all the time. But um, there's a feedback when 
I think my youngest was about one and a half. So my oldest was like three Mm -hmm. and a half or so. And they had their baby dolls and they were putting um, like diapers or swaddling them or something. I said, oh, what are you guys playing? And they're like, we're being daddies. (laughs) Yes. Yes, that is a part of being a daddy. You're right. And it just felt Mm. so good to know that, like, Mm -hmm. we are slowly breaking that down, that, like, daddies can be caring and loving. And in particular, so my partner is Mm 6'9". Oh, wow. And, like, just, like, a very large, very imposing figure a lot of times. And so it's wonderful that we are able to create as a family the space that says that's caring. Yeah, it's. I have a singing child in the background. That's Hold totally. I know you're fine. Okay. <laughs> it's funny though. That makes me think about something that I talk about a lot. Is this idea that uh, the sort of stereotype of boys not being allowed to play with baby dolls? Mm-hmm. And then I think it's interesting because then we make fun of dads. Yeah. For not knowing what to do. And I'm like, well, maybe you should let them play with a baby doll and they don't want to change a diaper. <laughs> but we don't sort of nurture that idea in, in young boys and th- that that's something they're allowed to learn about or explore. And then like we make fun of dads. There's sort of this stereotype of the aloof dad who doesn't know what he's doing. So I, I don't know. Yeah. I find that interesting. Anyway. We have, we oh, have, go ahead. We have to uh, like fight, just not like fight, but uh, break down those kind of dichotomies just in our parenting relationship mm. as we, you know, parent together that a lot of times he will step back thinking that like, that's what he needs to do, that he doesn't have enough knowledge or yeah. you know, that I kind of like, I, that's my realm. And I have to like reiterate, like, no, you're equal parts here. Like mm-hmm. you get to show up too. You get to have a say, like you get to cultivate those skills that, I mean, he was raised in a very kind of toxic masculinity that like erased all of his, um, or like covered up all of his like emotionality. Mm -hmm. And so as he's healing that, you know, I think parenting is like a very, can be a very healing process. right? Mm -hmm. And so while he's healing that he's able to show our children also that, um, that, that stereotype of like the aggressive or emotionally aloof yeah. um, like man figure is, is just, is just a myth. It doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. Um, and the truth is that no one's born, right? Even no one's born knowing how to change a diaper. No, no one's born no. knowing how to do these things unless, <laughs> yeah. right. And again, we're all individuals. So like I've been nannying for many years. So even though I'm a man, I, I'm more skilled at that. My, my wife, recently we are I was talking about our 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 friends who live nearby are always asking me to babysit and I'm really bad last minute I get booked up very quickly so I'm often have to say no and I'm like oh in the future if if they need someone to watch Toby do you want to do it she was like yeah but you're definitely gonna have to remind me how to change a diaper I don't remember how to change a diaper like I know and and so I think it's it's like again it's about us as individuals it has nothing to do with gender it's not like you know, um, one gender is better at changing diapers than other. Like, it makes and sense. like, I know when it comes to like the more complicated parenting stuff, um, I know my, you know, my partner will often, I think his first instinct will be to deflect a little bit the decision to me. Mm. And I think partly because I have a PhD in developmental psychology. And so I think he just assumes, yeah. oh, well, you know, 
you know, you, you have a PhD in knowing what kids are like. I was like, but I don't know what to do now with this kid on a Thursday. <laughs> like, I was like, just because I can teach a class on this, like the general stuff, like mine is mine yeah, the theory. on Thursday. <laughs> and I don't know, like what we tried on Tuesday and Wednesday is not working. So like, I'll just brainstorm here. <laughs> like, yes, yeah, so it's like, even oh when you gosh. do, I think have a lot of expertise in a thing it's not like that really helps you in the moment with that kid, with all of the other context going on and what their mood is and what their sibling is saying in the background and all of the other (laughs) stuff that makes it more complicated. I was like, yeah, I'm not teaching a class. I'm like, what do we do now? You know, I was like, let's just, let's just throw a bunch of ideas out and then we'll figure out what, what we think. (laughs) (laughs) My gosh, amazing. All that, yeah, all the things we talk about, all that praxis is messy. Yeah. You know, I can reflect and articulate and use the best language, but in the time, at the time, it's messy. It's uncomfortable sometimes. You are butting up against your own limitations. You're butting up against your own child self. It, like I have childhood trauma. You know, if, if you, um, you start to realize like some of that comes out, yeah. you know, like your initial voice mm-hmm. is what you heard as a kid. And so if you have to change that, yeah. it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to be like, oh, that just came out of me. Like, that's hard. And like, so that in continual practice of like gender neutral parenting and like breaking all of these things down, it's messy. And you come with your own baggage and your kids, mm-hmm. your own, their own person. And they're going to interact with that in their own way. So it's just, it's kind of, it feels it feels a lot different than yeah. it, it, it sounds like. Definitely. I think it's always a good. I always try to point that out. Like, I can say all these wonderful things, but it's really messy. I, I promise you. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say. I mean, I do think this is. It is an interesting where I think gender. These gendered issues really are just a part of general parenting, and the the idea that if you can focus on the child as just mm. an individual and have a one on one relationship with that individual. And so I think, you know, what, when you were just talking, it made me think my, so I'm dealing with now teenager kinds of issues. And so my, she was about 13 Mm -hmm. and she was doing some behaviors that were just pushing my buttons based on my own kind of childhood traumas. Yeah. And so I was having a very large reaction to, and my partner was good at saying, you know, all kids kind of do that. But I was having this very extra kind of reaction because it just of my own kind of buttons that were instilled from my own kind of childhood. And so that was the point at which I just talked to the 13 year old at the time and said, you know, when you're doing this. And so I had kind of shielded her from my own childhood traumas and some of the, you know, kind of alcoholism, things like that, that I had grown up with that made secrecy a real mm-hmm. kind of hot button issue for me yeah. in a way that it was, it wasn't yep. just hiding candy for me. It was no, it's like hiding alcohol. Like it became this much bigger issue than what it actually was. And it was at that point yeah. where I was, I was like, you know, I need to be mm-hmm. candid with her. So she understands why I'm like, why I care so much and why sometimes my reaction is a little yeah. bit more extreme than I really intend for it to be. And so I w- kind of said, this is why I feel this way. When you do it, it makes me feel like this. Um, and so it was this interesting moment of saying, you're doing this behavior that's pushing my buttons. And to really respect you, I need to really tell you more about myself. Um, and like a, you know, in a 13-year-old appropriate way. 
But I was like, ultimately, it's the same thing about these gendered issues, too. It's of sure. saying, this is what my button is. This is kind of what my value is. This is me trying to be responsive yeah. to what you're doing and when it bothers me and when it doesn't. And it worked out pretty well, but it was about kind of allowing myself to be vulnerable in that way. Um, yeah. And it, I was like, well, that's, you know, it wasn't really necessarily a fun conversation, but I was like, it was a really, I think, intimacy building moment between the two of us. And so she could also see me as just a person, you know? Yeah. And I I think that's something that, especially at least in like my parents' generation, um, there was this like lack of vulnerability in a way that was like, no, being a good parent Mm -hmm. means protecting my kids. And protecting them means not letting them in. Like my, so um, <laughs> who knew? Common thread. My father was also an alcoholic, um, and uh, he was an alcoholic for my whole life, and I had no idea. My parents hid this from me. He was so basically when I was um, about two. Uh, they got into an argument and like there was a physical altercation and my mom was like, you have to leave and you can't come back until you get sober. And he was pretty much sober for my whole life. Um, except then he started taking prescription drugs and it became a whole issue. But I had no idea until I was, until it became such a big issue that he had to move out again. I had no idea what was going on the whole time. And, um, and, and it was this idea again of like protecting like not not disclosing information was protecting them. But then in the end, right, I was totally caught off guard when then I was like, well, now all of a sudden I have a parent who's not in the house. And to me for the last, you know, 14 years, everything was fine. And now all of a sudden it's like, oh, you were lying to me this whole time. But then meanwhile, when I lied to you about dropping a frying pan that one time, it was a big deal. Um, but, you know, so it gave, it gave these sort of mixed messages. And I think now we're sort of realizing that being vulnerable with our kids is really important and like making them realize like, hey, we're people too. And we have past traumas and um, things that, you know, are sort of coming together to weave together who we are. And, you know, the reason that mm-hmm. I think it's important to say, hey, maybe I overreacted about yeah. about that thing, but this is why that was a trigger for me and, and you know, whatever. Um, and just mm-hmm. being vulnerable and making them realize that we're humans. <laughs> I think I always say I want to have an episode that's just called parents or people too. Um, <laughs> because I think, you know, a lot of times we forget that mm-hmm. we can be vulnerable with our kids and we don't have to be this perfect, you know, um, parent. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, so sort of reining things back into our topic, because again, with this is such a rich conversation and we could just talk all day, I feel like. Um, I'm curious sort of how we can promote um, gender diversity and things like that in play without, you know, forcing it, right? Not without sort of like what we were saying, like, well, you can't like princesses because you're a girl, you know, without going too far the other way. How do we promote um, gender diversity in play? I mean, I know how we do it in our house, uh, which is like, there are no rules. There's no characters you can't play. There's no, um, like, like we've uncoupled, I think pretty successfully uncoupled the idea of like something is a boy or something is a girl, mm-hmm. like, you know, that gendered way of mm-hmm. idea of play. And honestly, I think kids' natural instincts are to play. Yeah. I think it's adults that get in the way of that. <laughs> so I think if we just like got the hell out of the way, uh, there would be a lot more play around gender and exploration and um i'm sad that that is really cut off in a community way too like so my child got that space because i were we worked really hard in our home to create that space and there's of course like ton of privilege with being able to work really hard in your home Mm -hmm. to create that space 
Um, but when we go into the public school system, there isn't a whole lot of space for that. Mm. Um, and so now all of a sudden you have that, like, that could have been peer exploration as well into, you know, um, uh, seeing how other kids play with their their gender expression and and how they feel about themselves and all that kind of exploratory things. I think that's so important to see your peers doing that too. Like that's a wonderful level. Um, and so unfortunately, my kids have only really gotten, and, and also wonderfully that my kids have gotten their sibling, you know, they're, that they're siblings and that they can um, play and explore and talk about those things together. But I wish it was much wider. Yeah. And I think that a, a big thing I've learned is just to get out of the way, to let them do it and, and validate and say it's awesome. It's funny. I, it is. I think it sort of goes both ways. Like I think there's the the sort of, especially when they're younger, is like getting out of the way and without putting restrictions because mm-hmm. they learn those. Then when I find when they are, it's hard to, sh- and I want to talk yeah. a little bit more about this, but it's hard to shelter them once we get to school and they're learning these things. And there was a, a family that I was nannying the first family I nanny for full time, in fact, and they had a five-year-old and a nine-year-old and one was uh, the younger one was a girl and the older one was a boy. And so we would come up, come across these things and sort of how I would counter that is we would be playing together. And at this time I was presenting as female and we, let's say we were playing like, we were playing like King and Queen. And I was like, well, I want to be the King. And they'd be like, well, like, don't you have to be the queen? And I was like, no, we're playing, right? Like I could be whatever I want. And they were like, yeah, you know, that makes sense. Or like sometimes like the girl wanted to play house and the boy wanted to play zombie apocalypse. So we would play house in the zombie apocalypse, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which was very funny because we like, we have to put the baby down. Shh, the zombies are coming. Like, you know, it's just like, whatever. But um, that idea that, uh, you know, both allowing them to do their own thing. And then like with older kids, sometimes challenging the things that they maybe are learning that are going up against those values. Um, and saying like, hey, like, why do you think you have to be the princess? Like, if you want to be the princess, that's cool. But like, why do you, you know, why do you think you can't be the prince? Yeah, I think I love that. I think that's a really important addition because we do do that, right? Like, you, I think one of the most heartbreaking things for me a lot of times is that my uh, gender queer child will still sometimes um use like binary phrases right Mm -hmm. because you know they hear them and it's this idea of boy and girl and at first I was so worried about showing up with my own gender my own gender identity um because we got a lot of feedback that like we're making our kid this way um and so when I'm read as cis it's amazing I'm a really supportive benevolent parent when I'm queer I've made my kid queer right it's a no win. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to show up with my own gender, right? But it's been very helpful because I'm non-binary. So I can say, I don't fit in what you're saying. I don't, I don't fit there. So where can mommy fit in? You know, and so we kind of talk about breaking that down. And that's been uh, really helpful. So it doesn't make it so sometimes it can feel uh, really intense for a kid to, to point out like, hey, you're not making yourself fit in. And that's really sad. And that really hurts my heart. You know, so it's easier for me. I have, um, I'd like to, you know, term it as now a superpower that <laughs> my queerness uh, creates space for my kids to understand that there's so much more. But we do, we still have to enter, we still have to break down all those like yeah. gendered assumptions and, you know, um, and that's never always yeah. popular either to interrupt play to be like, mm, yeah. what do we feel about that? So I think having um, yeah, gotten yeah. my kids through those ages, <laughs> it gets a little harder at times when then you're dealing with peers in the fourth grade saying stuff to them, 
right? And then them getting teased on the playground because, you know, they're wearing the yep. black Batman shirt and only boys wear black. Um, or my, you know, my oldest when she was in the fourth grade, seems like fourth grade's the age at which there's this real kind of, they always played with both boys and girls. And then around third and fourth grade, you start to see this mm-hmm. big kind of segregation. And Maya, my older one, would say she didn't like sitting at the girls' table because all they talked about was my little princess. She's like, and that is just so stupid. I can't handle it. And so she would sit at the boy table. But then the boys started to really kind of reject her um, because they were doing their own kind of boy code, right? Mm-hmm. And so it left her not really having a space. And so that became heartbreaking as the parent because then she's got this really complex, so you know, yeah. and then so both kids have had that, these complex social structures that they have to navigate when I'm not there and when they're too old for, you know, me to kind of intervene. Like they have to be able to navigate it on their own. Um, so kind of helping them have the tools to yeah. be themselves and to know what to say back to the other kids and how to feel confident. But we really had to like role play. What do you say when a kid says something to you? But I think, and I think that's so the practicing things is so important and sort of the role playing things. And I think that's part of what mm-hmm. motivated me to start this podcast was this idea that like, even as, as adults, right, it's important to practice right. um, conversations and think about how we're going to talk right. about things. So we're right. maybe caught off guard a little less. And it's never going to be right. There's always going to be some question that catches you off guard. Um, but I think there's this idea that like, especially again, going back to the, the sort of sex talk, it's yeah. like, well, you're just, you're just supposed to know exactly what to say. And like, if you don't practice something, how are you going to know what to say? Um, and so I think that's really important. And that's something that we can do with our kids as well is say like, okay, what are, you know, if, when that scenario comes up, like, how can we counter that? If they say, well, that's a boy thing and you, you know, you can't be sitting yeah. at the boys table and be like, well, really? Like I like Batman and we're talking about Batman. So why can't I sit here? It makes no sense. Um, you know, and those kinds of things. Um, so my last like question, question before we sort of get into resources and, and things like that um, is uh, what, like, what are some ways that, I mean, again, this is sort of a culmination of everything we've been talking about, but what are some ways that, you know, raising a gender neutral child, what does that look like? Right. Or raising a child in a gender neutral way? Because I think it can, people have different ideas about what that looks like and what does it look like to you, I guess. I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't really use the language gender neutral very often because I think I don't know what that means. Yeah. Um, yeah. What does yeah, that mean? That's a know. good question. Yeah. What like, does I that mean? Know. <laughs> I like the idea of making, in some ways, I like gender creative or gender responsive. Yeah. And I just want to say for me, because I happen to have cisgendered female identifying kids, I try to raise them in a gender irrelevant way. So that gender is mm. irrelevant. Oh, I like that. So that gender is irrelevant <laughs> to the choices we make, the people we are, the ways in which we feel as humans. And so, gender, I think of as mm. you know, in some ways, it's the, somewhat of the analogy of like height, in that there's some biology, complicated biology related to it, but it really doesn't tell me anything about me as a person. <laughs> Um, and that it doesn't say much about anyone else, right? Like I don't know anything about you yeah. by knowing what gender label you're using. Um, and so I just think your people are much more interesting than that, that, that like really simple, basic description. It, it, there's evident, there's research. Gender does not predict very much about what we're good at, what our personality is like, what we're capable of. Nope. And so I just think that for me is what I do is let me make it irrelevant and let me make you so that you're not being 
inundated with this kind of BS list of restrictions that doesn't say anything about who you are. Yeah. I love that. I like that term gender irrelevant. And I think earlier in the, uh, in our conversation, we were also talking about like, it's nothing and like making it not important, but also centering it. And you're just like, yeah, it's so, but it is, it's it's always going to be that messy line you walk. Um, because that's where we find ourselves in a hetero sexist, like, you know, system. Uh, and a a sexist system, you know, like, um, and so, yeah, it is walking that line, but I think gender irrelevant is a fantastic term to use that we apply so much meaning to something that does not have the type of meaning we're, we're, it's, we like to use self-label a lot of different words. And so it's a self-labeling word. And nobody else gets to to choose that. And so therefore, right, like right. the meaning comes from within. And that's it. Do you mind taking a minute just to define cissexist for folks who might not know what that means? I think it's giving, yeah, I would say giving privilege and, um, and centering the cisgender experience and marginalizing those that are not. So we just have two quick questions. Um, one of them is, I'm just curious if you have any resources this could be for grown-ups um this could be for kids whether it's kids books podcasts you know toys that you recommend you know things like that that um just that you like around this topic of uh gender roles and gender creative uh, gender irrelevant one that comes uh, to my mind is i really like child rearing and it's <laughs> called welcomingschools.org um, and so it sounds like it's really just for schools, but I think it has a lot of mm. good resources and information for anyone. Um, and it's, I really like it. Um, and they have a lot of book list um, and a lot of definitions and really talk about how to talk to kids about these issues. And they have people that mm. do research on this. So a lot of it's really empirically based. Oh, that's awesome. Um, I got to check that out. Yeah, I do too. I love that. Because you know there's always going to be someone Um, who wants the numbers. Give me the numbers. (laughs) Do you have any, uh, anything to add to that? Um, I always say just building a relationship with your child that um, is responsive. Mm. So like, you know, we talked about like the discomfort with the idea idea of gender neutral. And I find that, um, you know, like I don't parent in a gender neutral way. I parent in a way that's responsive to what my child says their gender is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also understanding like, like we talked about like self-labeling and what that means and, and removing all those other ideas about um, what we as a society have connected to gender, which are yeah. like the perfect phrase, gender irrelevant. Right. Yes, I love that. Um, I need that on a T-shirt or something. I... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All, oh all the queer T-shirts, please. Yes, yes please. I mean, I <laughs> our next we're always looking for new merch. Or oh, that would be a nice pin. I want a pin that's just like gender is irrelevant. Um, anyway, um, uh, I actually have a couple of, um, books that I really like one. So there's one for, um, grownups that I really like. It's gender neutral parenting by Paige Lucas Stannard. Um, and that's a really great, it's like, uh, I don't know, it, it might be a little outdated. Um, it's a couple years old, but it is a really, really good, uh, as far as sort of 
a lot of the things we were talking about, like if you're looking and it's very practical in terms of like, oh, let's say you're looking at two toys. You want to get your kid like my first purse, right? Maybe you get the one, it might be pink, but if it has sort of more things like it has a cell phone, it has, you know, practical things. And as opposed to the one that has like my first credit card and my lipstick and, you know, things that are, if it, you know, things that as opposed to like having a cell phone, a keys, practical things, you might want your purse um, and sort of giving you uh, practical ideas and breaking down those and breaking down those ideas of uh, it also has a lot of that empirical data of like um, there was a study done I don't know how many years ago this was but where parents had to sort of guess how it was like toddlers crawling up a ramp and they had to guess how far their toddler would crawl and uh, almost across the board the girl the expectations for the girls were less um, even at that age. So it's really, really interesting read. And it's like a hundred pages. It's a very quick read. Big Bob, Little Bob is another one that I really like. That's a picture book for kids. And it's about, as you might imagine, two kids named Bob, one who is smaller and one who is taller. Uh, and basically Little Bob is really into sort of traditionally, uh, you know, types of play that are traditionally associated with girls. You know, he likes to play dress up. He likes to wear dresses and, and things like that. He likes to, um, you know, play with stuffed animals and is just a little bit more gentler in his play in general. And then Big Bob is a little more stereotypically male. He um, likes to, you know, play ball and, you know, get dirty and they're sort of opposites, but they're trying to be, they're trying to be friends because they're neighbors. And, um, and so, you know, at certain points, Big Bob is kind of like, you can't do those things. Those things are for girls. Um, and then a third character, you know, enters the story. It's a little girl named Blossom. And Blossom now comes to Little Bob and says, you can't do those things, those are for girls. And Big Bob ultimately stands up for Little Bob and says, you know, hey, anybody can play with what they want. Um, and then, you know, they invite her to play with them. And she says, okay, but, you know, I don't like the kinds of things that girls really like. Um, and so it's a cute book. Um, I do... You know, unfortunately, it's a little bit of a problem book where, you know, we're having a character who's being made fun of and um, which aren't always my favorite. But I do like the sentiment. I think that if there were a kid um, who a kid was starting to say things like, oh, that you, you know, pointing out that other kids couldn't do things because of their gender. Um, I think that might be a good book for that child. And then another book that I like is called Pink is for Boys. Um, and basically it goes through all the colors of the rainbow plus black and white, I believe. Uh, and, uh, basically talks about how all the colors are for everyone and you ever anybody excuse me and anyone can like any color um that i also do have a little bit of an issue with where uh you know i kind of wish the sentiment is that colors are for everyone so i kind of wish that the title were colors are for everyone or something like that it's also a pretty binary book um so, you know, it's like, this is for girls and for boys. This is for girls and for boys. It the, the beats you over the head a little bit with the girls and boys. Um, so those are, you know, some things that I might change about that book. But overall, I think, again, it would be good for a child who was starting to say, well, you know, I can't like pink because I'm a boy or, you know, things like that. Um, or was calling out other people for liking things because, you know, saying that they couldn't like things 
determinant on their gender, that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, those are two that I like. Does anyone have uh, anything else to add? One book that we really have liked um, and that has really mm-hmm. helped us and which was like amazing s- space when we really needed it, created space. That's why I love books because they can create these magical spaces. Yeah. It's called Meet Polka Dot. Yes. Broadhead. It was, that is the, um, that was like the beginning of validation for myself as a parent saying like, you're on the right track. You are. Yeah, that's a really good one. And it was super awesome because my, um, it was, they were two and a half at the time when we read it. And that is when they first really started to, to find a space in, Mm -hmm. in that book. Like, oh, polka dot, like, oh, yeah. I get it. You know, like that's, that's more like me. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought that was so incredible that a book can create that space. You yeah. know, that idea of like, oh, there's all, you know, there's some options. And my kid's like, that, that's yeah. the option. And that book is about a character who is non-binary for yes. folks who might not be familiar with it. It's one, it was one of the first, for a while it was the only one because I had a, only. I had I had a list I still have on, you can find it on uh, radchildpodcast.com, but I have a list that I had just started as like a hobby project years ago. That's like pretty much all of the LGBTQIA plus books in existence. It's a little out of date. Um, it was up to date when I first made it, but I need to, I need to update it. But for a while, that was the only one in that category. <laughs> um, uh, it's funny when I made that list, it made me realize where sort of the gaping holes were in the books that we needed to make. So just closing up here, unfortunately, we had some technical difficulties at the end of the episode. So the last couple minutes of our recording uh, did not make it. Um, But really all that I need to tell you is just I want to tell you a little bit about Christia's book because it is amazing. It is called Parenting Beyond Pink and Blue uh, and is just all about a lot of the things that we were talking about, about how to uh, (laughs) parent in a gender irrelevant way, um, and be aware of, of all of those kinds of influences and things. Um, so yeah, I definitely recommend that you check it out. Uh, it's called Parenting Beyond Pink and Blue. All right. Uh, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for joining us. And as always, stay rad. Dragons. Canada. The multiverse theory. Corgis. Queer representation. Reconciliation. Angels. Demons. Squirrels. Moose. Moose and squirrels. Sorcerers. Dinosaurs. Forests. Giants. Rogues. Warlocks. Plains. Sewers. Lavender. Natural Toonie. A Canadian Dungeons and Dragons podcast. Right here on the Upford Network. Hi, I'm Howard Mitnick, host of Gateway Music. Join me as I talk with people about the artists and albums that changed their lives, and about the artists and albums that changed mine. Available on the Upford Network and wherever you get your podcasts.
Do you wish more picture books truly reflected your family's values? Have you ever thought you found the perfect book, but when you got it home, it completely missed the mark? Shift Book Box is a picture book subscription service for kids ages 3 to 8, built around themes of social justice and centering diverse characters and creators. Each box features two beautiful picture books as well as expertly crafted discussion guides. We know that families want to engage kids in conversations about social justice topics, and we recognize how challenging it can be to find the right books and to feel supported in having these conversations. We find the books... We provide the prompts. You get both delivered to your door. Subscribe today at shiftbookbox.com and use the code RADCHILD. RADCHILD. All one word. RADCHILD. RADCHILD. For 10% off your first order. Shift Bookbox. Curating little libraries. Cultivating big change.